Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Good morning. My name is Harriet Congdon. Um, So we're in this series that was kicked off last week uh, in which four different people are going to be teaching the same Bible story, which was just read to you by J.R. The point is to hear it from four different perspectives to sit with the story for a while instead of unpacking it on Sunday and then forgetting it by Monday. So here's the deal. You are not allowed to judge which sermon is the best one, okay? (laughs) This is not a competition at all. The point, and this is what we want to do, is to have this exercise in appreciating how differently each person has engaged with the text. How they've not just read the text, but allowed the text to read them. So this morning, I'm going to share with you what I got out of this story. And to start off, what I want to do is show this video clip from the movie Titanic. How many of you have seen Titanic? Yep, okay. So watch this clip. Right, that's it, man. Goodbye, buddy. Good luck. Bye, Bolly. So long, Jack. Take a turn around the bed and load the first guy in the double deck. recognizes the hymn? You know the title? Good job, yeah, Nearer My God to Thee. It was written back in 1841 by Sarah Flowers Adams, and her lyrics are inspired by the story of Jacob's dream. Here are a couple of the verses. Let there the way appear steps unto heaven, all that thou sendest me in mercy given. Angels to beckon me, nearer my God to thee. Then with my waking thoughts, bright with thy praise, out of my stony griefs, Bethel, I'll raise. So by my woes to be nearer my God to thee. Okay, now what I want you to do is to listen to this audio intro of this song, which some people believe is a reference to Jacob's dream. So how many of you know what the name of the song is? Stairway to Heaven by the rock group Led Zeppelin, right? It came out in 1971 when I was in high school, and it became a huge hit. 
but there was a lot of chatter about what the abstract lyrics really meant. But Robert Plant, the guy who wrote them, said uh, that, he, well, he only gave this explanation for the song, for the beginning of the words, or the or beginning of the words of, to the song. He said, quote, It was some cynical aside about a woman getting everything she wanted all the time without giving back any thought or consideration. So listen to the first verse of the song while the words are on the screen. All it glitters is gold and she's buying the stairway to heaven. When she gets there she knows if the stores are all closed with a word she can get what she can. Okay, now even if this song has nothing to do with Jacob's dream, I think it's fair to ask some questions. Is Jacob's dream, the stairway, a source of comfort, which is where the hymn takes it? Okay. Or is it okay to be kind of cynical and think that his dream is his way to feel better about what he just did to Esau, his brother, and his father Isaac? There's enough ambiguity in the story to ask those tough questions, and here's a big one. How does God's purposes and his blessing make space for a family that has some pretty messed up people making some really bad choices? And put another way, you could say, is it possible to be both flawed and blessed at the same time? If you're not familiar with the story, Jacob is on the run from his older twin brother Esau because he's just cheated him of his inheritance and the special blessing by tricking their father Isaac. And to make it worse and a bit more messy, the whole plan, this deception, was cooked up by his mother, Rebecca. So we see this troubled, dysfunctional family playing out this script like it's a TV series of one uh, just incredible episode after another, and, and most of them make you just cringe. But the script won't make sense unless you see the pilot show, which covers the story before Jacob is born. If you've read it before, Rebecca's pregnant, and uh, she's feeling a whole lot of movement going on in her womb. And it's enough movement to cause her some concern. So she goes to God and prays and said, okay, what the heck is going on here? And he gives her an answer, actually two, and they're both kind of shocking. The first one is that she's having twins. The second is shocking in, this, in that it turns upside down this cultural tradition now, the expectation um, that I want to describe is something that Kurt mentioned last week. It actually has a term, and it's called primogeniture. And that is where the firstborn son is granted the right to inherit all of the family estate, as well as the status as being patriarch of the family. But this is what God told Rebecca about the twins in chapter 25, verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, 
and the older will serve the younger. Now, there's really not much debate about what God is telling Rebecca, the fact that the younger one is supposed to now get the birthright, not the older one, but the younger one. And this is a violation of a really pretty strong cultural tradition that's in place then. So this explanation that Rebecca gets from God, it creates a lot of tension in the family. The dad is sticking to the practice of primogeniture, mainly because his, the older twin, Esau, is his favorite son. I call him Esau the hairy hunter. And mom is trying to figure out how in the world is this prediction going to come true if dad is keeping the cultural practice. Plus, her favorite son is the other one, the younger twin, Jacob, the hairless homebody. No doubt she's been thinking about the problem for a long time, because remember, Kurt told us, you know, mentioned, uh, pointed out the fact that the boys, the twins, are 40 years old when Rebecca puts into play her plan of deception. That's a long time. So no wonder Jacob is, is pretty messed up. And he is not a guy that you like very much at all. He's greedy. He's willing to take advantage of others when they're weak and vulnerable, like his brother when he was hungry. And so he finagled the, uh, the birthright from him. And he's a deceiver, having no qualms about lying to his father's face. The only thing he's concerned about is getting caught. What he wants, he gets like the woman in the Led Zeppelin song. And you end up feeling really sorry for Esau. So it turns out that the plan is successful. Jacob, with the help of his mother, uh, steals that blessing from his, his brother. And now Jacob has to flee Esau, who's you know, understandably furious, and just wants, he wants to kill his, his younger brother. Everything that's happened so far with Jacob, all the conflict around him and the conflict with him, has led him to this decisive moment and place where it's just him and God. That first night must have been pretty rough for him, but you really don't get any indication from the text how he's feeling, what he's thinking. You have no idea if he's even thinking about God at all. But if you were to keep reading his story, later on in chapter 35, Jacob returns to this exact spot and reflects about his, his experience there. And he refers to Bethel as being the place where God answered him in his day of distress. So that's our only clue, that he really wasn't doing very well when he lay down to sleep. And his, his distress is obviously a complicated mess. I can imagine a whole bunch of questions and thoughts that are going through his brain as he puts his head on that hard stone. So where is God now? Did he lie to my mother, or did she misunderstand what he told her? Worse yet, maybe she was delusional. But what if she did hear accurately from God? Why didn't my father go along with God's plan? I mean, he's supposed to be this great man of faith. He, couldn't, he could have changed the rules if he wanted to, but he didn't. Father loved Esau more than me, and now I can't even have mother. In this place of distress where Jacob has lost everything, God shows up. 
he interrupts Jacob's sleep with this fantastical dream. And you can't help but notice this startling contrast between this awful experience that he's just had with his family and then this amazing dream that he has with God. Jacob believes that he's encountered God and it changes the course of his future. Like these lines in Stairway to Heaven. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on, and it makes me wonder. Your head is humming and it won't go, in case you don't know, the piper's calling you to join him. So what do we do with Jacob's dreams? I think it's significant that God does appear to Jacob in his sleep, where he's most vulnerable, where he is not in control like he's used to being. A lot of readers have found significance in the stairway and the angels, but the intended center of the story, this dream, is God himself. Like Jacob said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Last week, we were encouraged to consider the importance of being aware of God's presence, that when we're aware It brings perspective, and when we have that kind of perspective from God, then we're able to keep learning, and we're able to keep persevering no matter how difficult life gets. So what I want to do is put another layer to that and suggest that the awareness of God's presence uh, is hand-in-hand with an attentiveness to God's speech. That it's important to listen to what God has to say. Of course, that means you have to think about and consider, well, is God still speaking today? Jacob finds out for himself that the answer is yes. He has his first encounter with God. It doesn't matter that he's had this family history of faith in God. It doesn't matter that both Abraham and Isaac have had some pretty significant encounters with God with some really important conversations. It doesn't matter Because family stories cannot form faith. They can only inform it. Parents can try to transfer their understanding of God to their children, but they can't transfer their experiences with God. Jacob has to go on his own faith journey of discovering God himself. So in this nameless place, God appears to Jacob and he speaks. How he speaks to Jacob through this dream is exactly how Jacob is going going to recognize God. And what he speaks to Jacob is exactly what he needs to hear. As a side note, did you notice that what God doesn't say? Up until now, the dark side of Jacob's story has been told uh, pretty bluntly. It's ugly. But there are no justifications and no excuses given at all. When God shows up, what's surprising is there's a complete absence of moral judgments, either by the storyteller or by God when he speaks. There are no words of rebuke for Jacob's behavior. There are no calls to repentance for his deception. Absolutely nothing negative comes out of God's mouth. Any moral judgments are left up to the reader to make or not make. This story is not concerned with judging Jacob. 
or Isaac's and Rebecca's parenting skills, or their ability to demonstrate faith, or even to pass on a faith in a God who is faithful to his promises. And they failed miserably in that, in that way. But it doesn't matter, ultimately, because it's God who carries the responsibility of instilling and growing faith, of communicating his purposes and his care whenever he wants to whomever he wants. He doesn't seem particularly concerned about the past, only the present and the future. So let's take a look at what God says to Jacob. It's not surprising that he begins with what we call the Abrahamic covenant that's in this threefold promise that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Jacob. The first is the promise of land, then the promise of descendants, and then the promise of blessing to other nations through them. But then he goes on, God goes on to give another promise that's in a fourfold way. There's four statements that he makes. And these statements were not given to his father or grandfather. Let's read verse 15. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. I am with you, a promise of presence. I will watch over you, a promise of care. I will bring you back, a promise of return. I will not leave you, a promise of loyal love. It wasn't enough to just be told about those promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac. Knowledge was not enough. Jacob needed a shift in his own reality, a shift in his perspective in this very bad situation that looked the opposite of what was promised him. He needed an experience of God's presence where he heard the promises as personal, not just to God, but to him, to him, Jacob. Now, for us, um, we can't adopt the Abrahamic covenant. That was just for Abraham and his descendants. But I believe we can hear God in those four statements as personal to us. I am with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back. I will never leave you. I needed those promises during time when I questioned uh, how much I really mattered to God. I remember thinking about John 3.16, which we all learn really you know, early on in faith. For God so loved the world. But my question was, but does he really love me? And I wasn't sure about that. I went from being on fire for Jesus during high school and college years to becoming an atheist seven years after graduating from Bible college. Without knowing if God really loved me, I couldn't sustain my faith. So my faith shattered. I quit believing. I had to go through that shattering, though, in order to find God again. How I finally knew that God loved me is my Bethel story. It's my story. And I don't mind telling the whole story. There's a lot of details I haven't told you, parts of it I've shared before. But to be honest, I tend to hesitate about telling that story because spiritual experiences are, are really personal. They're unique to each individual, 
You can't duplicate them, and you can't turn them into a formula. No one can set up their spiritual experience as the norm. There's no way we can look at Jacob's dream and say, ah, that dream, that's the gold standard. That's what I need to achieve. Your journey with God is unique to you because God knows you intimately. He knows how and when to show up so that you recognize him, and he knows how and what to say to you so that you'll hear him. He speaks in a way that you can hear. I believe with every fiber in my being that, that the God that I worship, the Jesus I know, wants to be found. In fact, he's a God who pursues us. Jesus isn't a concept that's taught. He's not a model to be imitated. And here's one that's, I think, the biggest challenge as parents and for a children's ministry is this. Jesus is not just a story to be told. Not if you want transformation from the inside out. Jesus is a person to be known. But no one has control over when he shows up or how he is known. My own experiences with God um, influenced what I said to my sister after she was diagnosed with cancer. Pretty early on into my monthly trips to Florida to take care of her during her uh, chemo treatments, uh, Pat started bringing up questions about God, which she had never, never done in the 40 years that I was a Christian and a sister to her. She would never ask. So the first thing Pat asked when I was taking care of her was to help her understand the meaning of an experience that she had a long time ago. She was a young mom back then, and uh, she woke up in the middle of the night and saw a man standing in her bedroom, a well-dressed man. Now, she said for some reason she felt no fear. There wasn't any fear at all. But the man didn't say anything. He just looked at her, turned around, and walked out the bedroom. So without waking up her husband, she got up and followed him out. And by, that by the time she got to him, he had walked past the kitchen, past the living room, and was at the front door. And when she got there, he again, he, he didn't say anything. He just looked at her for a few seconds, and then he turned around and walked out the front door. So she didn't know quite what to do. She said, well, I'll, I'll just go back to bed. So she did. She started heading back to bed, and as she passed through the kitchen, she smelled natural gas. Someone had inadvertently or somehow didn't turn it off correctly, and gas was coming into the room, and there was no flame on the burner. Of course, she quickly turned that knob off, but it occurred to her that if she hadn't woken up and followed this man out, you know, something terrible could have happened to her and her family. And then she said, okay, Harriet, what does that mean? <laughs> And I thought, whoa, I, I kind of, uh, well, I admit, I kind of froze. I thought, whoa, what do you do with a story like that? She wasn't normally a delusional person. <laughs> and I didn't think she was lying to me, but maybe she was telling me the story to test me, kind of like what Jesus did with the Pharisees to stump them, and she, he would tell these stories. But I decided in the end I would believe her, and so this is what I told her. I told Pat that I believed in angels, that what she saw was perhaps an angel that had been sent to keep a disaster from happening. 
Um, and then I kind of paused, and I thought, gosh, uh, where am I supposed to go from here? <laughs> so I was praying, and this is what came out of my mouth. I uh, told her that even though she and her family were spared this potential disaster, um, there was no way I could promise her that what God was going to do the same thing with her cancer. I told her that I couldn't promise her that God was going to heal her. I certainly was going to pray for healing, but I couldn't promise it. But because of her story, I said that I was confident about one thing. God was with her and had been for a long time, that he was watching over her and that he cared about what she was going through. And then I stopped talking. <laughs> I, I know for some reason, I just didn't take the conversation any further. Now, she seemed pretty satisfied with my answer, but later, I, to tell you the truth, I felt terrible. I felt like I failed, that I stopped short of sharing the gospel with her and making sure she was saved and going to heaven, but I didn't. And then again, I wasn't sure she was even asking that question. So this is what I did. I asked God for another chance. I told him that if he would open up the door again to another conversation, I would definitely talk about Jesus. And so I waited for that. Well, a few weeks later, um, we happened to watch a Katie Couric show in which she was interviewing three people who had died, had some experience of heaven, and then came back and they were revived. I thought, well, this is interesting timing. And uh, after the show ended, my sister was quiet, and then she told me, she says, I don't know if I'm going to be in heaven when I die. There it was, the open door. Now, for some of you who have grown up in a particular church culture, you know that that statement is like the perfect opening to sharing the gospel, right? Perfect. Uh, maybe what you do is you pull out your handy-dandy little four spiritual laws booklet and you take them through the four steps of how to be saved, right? Or maybe <laughs> you take out a piece of paper and you start drawing that bridge illustration, the one where you're standing on one side of the chasm because you're sinful and the other side of the chasm is heaven. And maybe you might draw those flames that are at the bottom of the pit. <laughs> and then you draw the cross as a bridge to one side of the chasm to the other, right? Either way, you have them pray this very specific prayer so that they can know that they're saved and will go to heaven. I didn't do that. I didn't do either method <laughs> at all. Because of my own journey and the fact that I still ended up an atheist even after following that formula, I just couldn't take that route with my sister. So what I did was I gave her the basics of who Jesus was, what his death and resurrection meant, how God had... Uh, uh, provided a way to have a relationship with him through Jesus. And then I said something that was actually risky. It took control completely out of my hands. I asked her to pray before she went to bed that night and ask God that question, where was she going to end up when she died? And then wait for an answer. It was risky, but I just couldn't present a relationship with God like it was some kind of a transaction. Or offer her the prayer like it was some kind of a magic spell that guaranteed heaven to her. 
That night, I went to bed praying like crazy, you know, that God would come through, that he would show up and reveal himself to Pat. And you know, she came out of her bedroom the next morning and greeted me with this huge smile instead of this look of disappointment. She never told me the details, but I saw that something had changed. I saw the fruit of the Holy Spirit. She never voiced doubts about heaven again. In the middle of cancer and chemo, Pat found Jesus. Just a few days ago, May 24th, was the fifth anniversary of God bringing her back. Not to me, not to health, but to him in heaven. And I miss her a lot. I miss her terribly. But I treasure those last months that I had with her, especially because now we were sisters in Jesus. We can't control much of what happens in our life or when God chooses to um, reveal himself and speak. But we can't control this, whether we will seek God and ask the questions we need to ask, those questions that we're holding deep in our heart whether we'll keep alert for where he's present, whether we'll be attentive, we'll pay attention when he starts speaking. Speaking. One of my favorite definitions of a disciple comes from a Jewish rabbi who said, a disciple is a cistern ready to catch any drop that comes from God. A disciple is a cistern ready to catch any drop that comes from God. Here's a picture of an ancient cistern if you don't know what it looks like. I don't know if it'll come up or not. No. <laughs> um, at a previous church, there it is, yeah. At a previous church, there was a group of seven women that I mentored together. And I wanted to make it clear that it wasn't as important for them to listen to me as it was for them to listen to God. So we called each other cisterns, spelled with an S. And we spent our time together helping each other Recognize when God showed up or what he was saying to us when he was speaking. Many times, becoming a cistern, just positioned to catch that drop from God, it happens during times of trouble or stress. And when you get really good at being a cistern, the difficult times are a bit easier to get through. I have a friend named uh, Sarah the Barge who has written a couple of wonderful books. And uh, she describes some incredibly hard, hard circumstances in her books. She is someone who is very practiced at detecting God when he shows up or hearing when he speaks. She posted a story on her blog that I think is a beautiful example of how she is a cistern. Sarah is a physician assistant, and at the time of the story, um, she was working in a hospital in Africa. And one night, she collapsed. She didn't know that she had contracted malaria. So some nurses found her passed out. They got her into a golf cart and drove her over to the hospital. And then they wheeled her in a gurney down this hallway to a room where there was a doctor and IV fluids with malaria medicine waiting for her. She woke up the next morning just feeling horrible. And there wasn't much she could do. There wasn't a TV in the room to distract her from her aches and her pains and her nausea. 
She wished that someone would just come into her room, sit by her bed, and just tell her a bunch of stories, but no one did. So she said she prayed and asked God to tell her a story, but he didn't. That afternoon, her nurse came in to change her bottle of IV fluids, and Sarah describes Wade as this large, outgoing American man in his 50s with this gigantic mustache who used to be a firefighter before he went to nursing school. As he was working with the tubes, he started laughing to himself, and then he shook his head and said, I don't think maintenance guys are very happy with me. And Sarah asked him why, because apparently the guy <laughs> had a reputation. He had a lot of stories of where he would either break something or else he would just get into a lot of trouble. So Wade answered her, because I broke down the door. Then he went on to tell her that he had seen the nurses wheel her in in that gurney, and when she, he saw how pasty she looked, um, he got really worried. And so he tried to open the screen door that led into the hallway, but the latch wouldn't work. So he said he just broke down the door. By the time he explained himself, he had finished what he was doing, and as he went to leave, he called over his shoulder, kind of winked at her, and then closed the door saying, I broke down the door to get to you, kid. I want to go ahead and read what Sarah wrote as she reflected on that. As I laid in that hospital bed, I thought of how sick I was feeling and how far away home seemed. I had asked God to tell me a story, and instead he'd said Wade to tell me about breaking the door. But maybe that's exactly the story I needed to hear in that moment. Maybe that's all the story I'll ever need to hear. For a long time to come, whenever I hear John 3:16, for God so loved the world, or whenever I think of, of what I learned in Africa, or whenever I try to explain to anyone what's at the heart of my faith, I'll think about the gospel, the simple good news, as God the Father, a jovial man with a handlebar mustache, shaking his head and smiling with a chuckle that makes his belly shake. I was worried about you, God says to the world with laughter in his voice and love in his eyes. So I broke down the door to get to you, kid. I broke down the door to get to you. This is the God I know. This is the gospel I want you to hear, that God has broken down the door to get to you. Three out of the four gospel writers tell us that when Jesus took his last breath on the cross, something happened in the temple. The curtain that separated normal people from the Holy of Holies, that sacred place where God only met with the high priest, that curtain was split from top to bottom as if heaven, heaven was now open to earth. One of my favorite passages in Hebrews 10 reflects on its meaning of that curtain. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. I want to close our morning with a time of prayer and invite you to enter that most holy place. 
Would you close your eyes? Let's sit for just a few seconds and still our minds. Now I invite you to picture yourself as a cistern. Imagine the water dripping one drop at a time into your cistern. I'm going to read each of the four promises God made to Jacob, like each is a drop of water, followed by some silence for you just to meditate on that and, and to consider what this drop might mean to you. Here is the first drop of water. I am with you. Isaiah 41 says, so do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Second drop of water. I am watching over you. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Third drop of water, I will bring you back. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandon you, for a brief moment abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. fourth drop of water. I will not leave you, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Thank you, God, that you meet us where we are. You reveal yourself in a way that we can see you, and you speak in a way that we can hear you. 
we'd ask for faith to believe this, especially for our children and our grandchildren. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as I bless you? As you leave this place and experience life each day, may you know with confidence that Jesus is with you, that he's watching over you, that he is always working to bring you back to him, and that he will never leave you. May you see where he's present and speaking. Go in the peace of God. Thank you.